0: Hello everyone, Sam Willis here. Now, before we begin, I wanted to make a little announcement. I'm delighted to tell you all that I've teamed up with the excellent Bike Odyssey, a company with history and travel deep in its heart. They offer exceptional biking adventures. Bike Odyssey was set up by the historian, TV presenter and friend of mine, Sam Wood, who made the BBC documentary On Hannibal's Trail and he subsequently dedicated his life to cycling in the footsteps of great historical figures. This autumn I'll be joining their Venetians tour travelling in the footsteps of Marco Polo. Come along and see for yourself why the Adriatic Sea is the most scenic coastline in the world. Along the way, I'll be sharing stories from my life of travel, adventure and research, as well as exploring the history all around us. It'll be a chance not just to immerse yourself in some of the world's most fascinating history, but to change the way that you think about the past. Now, if you want to find out more, just head over to bikeodyssey.cc. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like rain, prams or wading. Or poodles, doodles, noodles. Or food, rude
1: and dude. Those two are about the history of manners and the history of cool. Which I really want to do. We'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example... Who knew that the history of monkeys is in fact all about discovery and exploration, fear and fascination. And it's also, thanks to our new friends at Foreign Field Living History Group, Paul, Kyle and Rory, it's all about national service. This comes from an anecdote of one of their shows uh, around the 1950s Malaya Emergency Living History Camp at Sherwood Forest. And they had a veteran who came to talk to them and... They asked him what he ate, and they expected to get things about ration packs and everything. And he said, well, you know, occasionally we got chickens from the camp and villages. You get curry powder, lots of rice. I ate monkey once. It was all right, but I won't eat it again. <laughs> <laughs> I ate monkey once. Yes. <laughs> that's that's good. Thanks, guys, for that.
0: Let the man sitting opposite me, let's just say that if, if history was burned, James would find its ashes and he'd put it in a little urn on a shelf and worship it. It is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James.
1: Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the Ian Botham of history. Wild, woolly and talented and can cart a ball all over the park all day long. It's the famous historical adventurer,
0: Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, Hello, Sam. Hello, hello. Um... So we're going to do cricket. We certainly are. We've been um, immersed in cricket for the last few weeks. Uh, We wanted to do this a little bit earlier um, with the World Cup on and the women's ashes on. uh, But it's taken us a while to do it. However, I have managed um, also to um, conduct an interview with the legendary Vic Marks. So that was thoroughly enjoyable. And we're going to be releasing that Vic Marks interview as a, a separate little bonus episode. We certainly are. But we decided we needed to tackle... This properly. Cricket has an
1: enormous history. Yeah. And it's a history that is immersed in, in, in history itself, connected. We can, th- we can think about cricket from all sorts of conventional angles. You can think about when cricket was invented, when it was first played. Um, it's thought to date to the 16th century. Mm-hmm. And there is a record in 1597, a man who is in a dispute over land in Guildford in Surrey Um, in court, uh, basically recalls having played cricket on that spot with his childhood friends 50 years beforehand. Right. Um, I'm sure it can go back much, much earlier than that as well. Uh Uh, There are ideas that it's in in Saxon times. Um, In 1610, two men who don't attend church on a Sunday... Uh, get into trouble because instead they are playing cricket. Mm. So it's it's fascinating how you can pick it up incidentally in yeah. the in the archives. But you can look at the how it develops as the national game. You can look at the way in which it suddenly becomes connected to empire, yeah. and it sort of explodes around the world. You can look at it in terms of education. This idea of it's not just that's not cricket. Um, you know this sort of way of exporting. English values yeah. around the place and teaching people in certain ways. So it, it's connected to apartheid in the, you know, during the
0: um, sort of 70s. Um, so it's a huge subject is i'm i 'm slightly not troubled by it, but i couldn 't work out whether it was an unexpected subject or whether it was a established subject we need to pull apart in unexpected ways. Because so I think a lot of people who uh, listen to this or are interested in sports history you 'll obviously know there is a history of cricket um, but being able to kind of pull that apart in 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 unexpected ways is also helpful, but I think for other people, they may not realize that actually the history of cricket is is fantastic, and in fact because it 's so bundled up in all of these things that you 've mentioned it's it 's like a perfect canvas for histories of the unexpected. It's all about gambling mm. as well. 18th century, explodes, it's
1: all about gambling and people make a lot of money out of cricket. Yeah. Uh, so much so that they have to bring in a limit of £100, I think it is, uh, to stop people. I mean, it, that's still, in the d- back in the day, a lot of money. Um, but it shows how popular it is. It's not just today that syndicates are making a fortune out of cricket.
0: I think the first time I came across a mention of cricket and history was in maybe when I was about nineteen, um, my first degree uh, when I was doing history and I did a course on naval history, which sort of established my life as being a being a maritime historian. Um, but there was a there was an account of some violence at a cricket match. Ooh. And um so not only was it, was, and this is in the 18th century, not only was cricket attracting massive crowds in the 18th century, but um, completely uncontrollable crowds as well. So not only to do with the amount of people, but to do with um, behaviour en masse watching a sporting event. Violence. I think the word was riot.
1: A cricket bat as a weapon as well. Mm. I went to the kind of school where cricket bats were weapons. <laughs> uh, I remember I, I, was a, I did nothing during summers of my childhood except play cricket. Hmm. Occasionally football, but, but I was cricket mad. And occasionally
0: um, weapons were made out of cricket bats. Did you go to that kind of school? Um, I, I went to a school where we played cricket. I'm not sure whether it was a fighting school. No. Not... <laughs> 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 um, I have a, an, an interesting aspect to cricket at the moment because my daughter plays a lot of cricket. Hmm. In fact, she, um, she opened the batting for Devon yesterday in a match against Dorset. In which she scored 50. Well done, Ms. Willis. Well done, Ms. Willis. Um, And I've been very interested in in women's cricket. And I was uh, listening to something on the radio about the history of the women's ashes. Ooh. And where they were played. And um, did you know that the Women's World Cup, Cricket World Cup, was established before the Men's World Cup? No, I didn't. How cool was that? Two years before. Very cool. Yeah, really interesting. Um, So one of the problems was getting the women to be able to play at Lord's. And the captain at the time, Rachel Hayhoe Flint, yes. very interesting name. We might talk about that a little bit later. Um, campaigned to have the women's team be allowed to play in, on the hallowed turf. Everyone keeps calling it the hallowed turf of Lords. Absolutely. And um, for years and years, the MCC turned around and said, no, 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 no. And finally, um, they got the go-ahead. Now, what's interesting about this is that when the England team came down to field they were fielding first they got to the long room now the long room is like the beating heart of lords cricket ground it's um a majestic room full of um significant historical oil paintings of mm. significant historical figures uh, and matches hmm. um, at the time there was the women were, <laughs> were allowed to play cricket at lords but there was problem with them actually being allowed in the pavilion and in the changing rooms and then in the long room. But they were eventually allowed in the in the pavilion. They were allowed in the changing rooms. But then they, the women didn't feel that they could walk through the long room to go out to bat. So they went out a side door. But then the Australians came down and they went straight through the long room and went out to bat. And what was really interesting about this is that the... Uh, Rachel Hayhoe Flint and others in the team were interviewed about what was going on here. Like, why would why were they kind of paralysed by this fear? They'd already been granted access to the pavilion but they, they and, the, and the change rooms, but they couldn't go through the long run. And the answer really interested me because it was painted in terms of an Australian approach to history. <laughs> OK? So it, you know where I'm going with this. But basically, in terms of... Um, <laughs> I, I I possibly do. They have they had um, little interest in history, no respect for history, no respect for tradition. The assumption being they don't have any history because they were established, Australia was established in the 18th century by the English. And um, it was fascinating the way they were talking about this. It made me think, is that actually a thing? The different countries and nationalities have different approaches to history. So in this case, it's it's not, the question isn't whether they actually have a different approach to history. It's the fact that the English people thought that the Australians had a different approach to history. So there are two aspects of it. One is do different nationalities have different approaches to history? And two, is there other examples of different nationalities thinking that other countries have different approaches to history? Quite probably. But I, it's also, it,
1: I imagine it's also the equivalent of trash talking. It's like we're going to walk right through your yeah. tradition and history and. Yeah. Beat you on the field.
0: Yeah. No, oh, it's fascinating. I want to Excellent. find out more about that. Excellent. And the, the, um, yeah, the, the English perception of Australianness. Mm, mm. very good. Whether it's real or not.
1: Well, for me, having written our little book on world, the unexpected history of World War II, I'm still in a World War II mindset. And one yeah. of the things I was quite interested in while I was reading over you know, all sorts of stuff about cricket was the impact that it had on World War II. Uh, or the impact that World War II had on cricket. Um, and, of course, one of the immediate things is um, that it stops play, basically. Um, the West Indies tour is cancelled uh, in 1939. Hmm. Uh, at Lords, all the sort of trophies, the ashes, the famous sort of ashes uh, urn is packed away for safekeeping. Um, I wonder if it, it's kept at Lords or gets sent somewhere.
0: I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. We could. I I didn't read that deeply. No, we're funny to find out. But the, the um, you know, wh- where the relics of cricket were sent. How, yeah. how important were they? Were they like the crown jewels? Yeah, yeah. I've no idea. I mean, it may be. Maybe it was just sort of boxed up and put away in the way
1: that you know lots of things were were put away. A lot of a lot of um, a lot of rare books and manuscripts were sent across to America, um, and uh, never came back. Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the MCC cancelled their India tour, um, and. There were it was more than that, though, it was the way that people actually thought about the war in terms of certainly serious cricketers used cricketing as a metaphor to actually understand, you know, certain aspects of, of the war. Um Sir Holmes Seaton Charles Montague Gordon, twelfth uh, Baronet Gordon of Embo Sutherland, wrote in the Cricketer magazine uh that he described at the outbreak of war England was now has now started the grim test match with Germany. Um, And he Hmm. described it as akin to when the ashes of civilization were at stake. And if you have a look through... What was that published in? That was published in a magazine called The Cricketer. Uh, And if you have a look at The Cricketer, around this time, there's lots of sort of cricketing metaphors used to describe it. Um, I mean, other writers felt that had the Germans learnt to play cricket, um, they would have been you know, much less likely to start the war. And that, again, is about the exporting of English values and fair play. And there were there were trips across to Germany in 1934, I think it was, to try and get um, the scout movement to sort of have more in common with uh, Hitler youth. Um, and one of the things that they wanted to do was was teach the Germans to... Uh, German children, to play cricket. Mm. And Ribbentrop uh, apparently said that the, the game is far too complex uh, for us to master. <laughs> it's, a, um, it's a PR problem <laughs> they're still struggling it's with. A, it's a big PR <laughs> problem. But it's, it's very interesting then the way in which... What, what war does is it disrupts first-class cricket and county cricket. Um, but what you see is attempts by cricket fanatics to keep some sort of fledgling game going. And there's a British Empire XI that tours the country... Playing different different teams, Um, but more or less, it's international cricket is is cancelled. It's cancelled in South Africa. It's cancelled in the West Indies, but not, strangely enough, in in India. Um, There's also evidence that people played cricket abroad. So when they were out fighting, there's evidence of people having of all sorts of people having taken cricket with them and played it in their free time, and even playing it in the prison camps as a way of keeping up morale and descriptions of basically people play i mean you don't necessarily travel with a cricket bat um but you know some people would have traveled with a sort of well-oiled linseed oiled bat um but then improvising um wickets and bales out of you know a piece of corrugated iron or or just a bucket turned upside down and then when war is over in 1945 there's a series of victory tests um which are, which are put on very, very hastily.
0: Amazing. Um, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I'm going to Google victory tests. and Yes. Then... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Anyway, it's a, so it's a fascinating history about World War Two and cricket. So let's just stop and think about how we know about all of this as good historians. Yes. See, cricket is unusually good at producing paperwork. Oh, yes. Yes, um, yes, yes. And I was thinking about this the other day when um, I was watching my son play cricket and I realised that there is... Probably an archive at my old school where they've got the um, scorebooks from uh, eighty nine, ninety yep. something like that. Yep. When I, of course, was and, captain of cricket uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in my unbeaten oh team. Um, no, but it'd be nice to go and see them. Um, yes. Go and see them. I mean, I think the archives of cricket would be
1: would be extraordinary um, because. You know, from 1880, you have the cricket reporting agency. Yeah. So you have an agency that is basically set up to report you know, all sorts of scores and test matches and and everything. You've got Wis- Wisden almanacs as well uh, that date back to the 19th century and continue today. You know, they're over 150. Years old, and they're—I mean—they're I mean, they're wonderful. Do you have any? I don't. Oh, I, I used to collect them uh, yeah. when I was uh, when I was younger uh, for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to stop because reading them because they're like fifteen hundred pages long. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about wisdom um, in a little bit. Wisdom, um, wisdom, yeah, 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 yeah. D E N, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I should talk about wisdom as well. Um, but they're—you know—I suppose you've got you've got that. You've then got all the, um, the evidence
0: of county cricket, yeah. school cricket. But it's not just scorebooks. No. You've got also for the, for the high matches, you've got match reports. Yes. So there's loads of stuff in the papers, in the press. Yeah. Um, and nowadays, there isn't very much reported. So, I mean, if Exeter were playing a match, you might find something in a local paper. But, you know, in the 20s and the 30s, uh, it was a massive thing. There was, there was a, a big industry of cricket journalism. Yeah. Uh, and that all exists now in the archives of local newspapers yes. and national newspapers. Cricket journalism is some of the best journalistic writing that there is, I would argue. Yep, I completely agree with you. And there's diaries as well, because the the interesting thing about cricketers is they travel. They're actually a gift for historians. So you're not... A lot of the time, someone, say, in 1910, might be working in, I don't know, Maidenhead in Surrey in a factory, and they stay there their entire lives. Cricketers move around move around the country and then they move around other countries and move around the world and so they they're like little gifts from historians tootling off and then keeping their diaries telling us what's going on all over the world through their through their cricketers prism. now and there's one thing i want to talk about i have just sent you an email i saw that let's yes. look at that team picture mm. right yes now i'm obsessed with these so um the one historical source that you get with cricket. A team Uh, photographs. Lovely. Right, any idea what's going on here? This is a cricket
1: team. Yes, it's a cricket team. (laughs) One, two, three, four, five, six. I'll give you a clue the little guy on the far right. What kind of hats are you wearing? At uh, the far right, a sailor hat. Yes, very good. Yes. And
0: top left, uh, oh gosh, officers, uh, officers, sailor hat. Yeah. Sailor hat. They're, they're, it's, a, it's a naval crew. Uh,
1: it's a naval it's a crew. Uh, uh,
0: excellent. And um, it had to come back to maritime cricket. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then who who have we who have we got at the front here? Let's have a look. Who've we got there? Ship's dog. So this comes from the truly excellent Robley Brown diaries. First up is that someone's called Robley, which is a wonderful name. Um. Guys, if you want to look at these, you need to join the Navy Records Society. Um, navyrecords.org.uk, and it is a truly wonderful thing. They've been publishing British naval records since 1893. Um, yeah, and funny. there's an online magazine. It cost us 20 quid to join, and um, this is one of the examples of, of things. So someone's this is um, Jack Tannett. Um, he is Robley's nephew, and he's been sitting on these photographs, and there's a post on Robley's Sporting Diaries. Um, from around about 1900, he's all over the world. He's in China, He goes to Naval Gymkhana, a wide variety of sports. Anyway, um, he keeps a diary about his... He was a great cricketer, Rob Lee. Mm. Um, he was a surgeon, mm. uh, which is interesting. He got on very well, very um, nice chap. So here's, here's a, just a couple of um, excerpts from his diary. Uh, 1899, April the 25th, the day after my birthday, James. There um why hey hey why hey why sorry, umpired in cricket match said the Centurion, officers versus the men. So interesting um, social split there. The former won. Um, 1899, two days later, again at Y-hey-why, hey, why, cricket match, officers versus men. Another one managed to secure no fewer than four catches. Men dispatched us badly. So they got spanked by, the, <laughs> by their men. Um, then we have got so they're different ships playing each other. So different types of um different types of match as well. But I wanted to draw your attention to this photograph because. Uh what's your knowledge of Polar Explorers like? Uh poor. Poor. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Okay. Um so we've just talked about officers versus men um playing cricket match. But in this team there are nine officers and there are two ratings, and it was very common for ships like this to field mixed sporting teams. It was a way for them to you know, team, mixed class. Team build, yeah. yes. Yes, yes. Um, and you can find out a variety of things about the photograph. So the, the guy's hat on the right actually identifies his ship as the Royal Arthur. So you know what ship they're on. But then next to him, you've got um, this chap called Lashley. And he is a stoker. Just in the brackets, it says ST next to him. And he is William Lashley, who was the well-known polar explorer decorated member of both Scots Antarctic expeditions, both of them, and who was serving in that ship, the Royal Arth, in 1893 to 1895. Hmm. So you have these pictures, and there are lots and lots of them. So everyone was very proud of them. They copied them, and they kept them in their diaries. And it's a way of seeing the faces of the people on the ship. So often with with the Royal Navy things, you have just lists of men. You don't know exactly who they are. Hmm. Uh, But it was was one of the members of the Navy Records Society said, that is Lashley, the polar explorer. So a new bit of discovery there. And he wrote some really interesting diaries. And if people wanted to see that photograph, we'll post
1: it, won't we? Yes, we will. Excellent, excellent. Well, I want to go back to the Wisdom uh, almanacs, um, because I think this connects us to train spotting and memory, hmm. um, in, in that it's the kind of, like, it's the sort of geeky side of, of history. It's that, um, it's the stats. And these these are tremendous little volumes, and over 100, well over 150 uh, now, um, and they were founded in 1864 by the English cricketer uh, John Wisden. And they were supposed to be a, a competitor to Lillywhite's um, The Guide to Cricketers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are just full of all sorts of information uh, about cricket and about that season. They're published just before the cricket, the new cricket season. And they include uh, sections on awards, records, then a big section on English cricket, where they give summaries of minor counties, second eleven universities, school and premier club cricket, as well as the Village Cup, mm-hmm. would you believe? There's overseas cricket, something on law and administration. There are even book reviews of the year. So they're full of all sorts of things, but... What I really want to talk about with these is the collectability. And what's fascinating about cricket is the way in which a lot of the memorabilia gets collected. Yeah. Um, and it's called Cricketana. Um, and and wisdom Annuals, or Almanacs, traded hands, for, traded money for quite a lot of dosh. Um, so, for example, if you're looking for one of the first published annuals, uh, 1864. They can swap hands for as much as five thousand pounds, and apparently um, W. G. Grace's own signed uh, wisdoms were discovered in a trunk in Canada, and they sold for hundred and fifty thousand mm. um, pounds. But it's not just it's not just wisdoms. It's all sorts of things that are that are traded for a lot of money um you know um cricket bats balls um paintings that are that are signed anything like that is you know is fetches a lot of money fred truman's um cap um no fred truman's ball that claimed he it's claimed that he bowled his 300th test wicket um sold in 1964 for ten thousand pounds, and there's a wonderful. If you go online and have a look at the cricket collection, the Lillywhite Family Museum. The Lillywhites are a very old uh, cricketing family. Uh, some of the sort of first, um, some of the first uh, English cricketers, uh, John Lillywhite, uh, his cricketer's companion James Lillywhite's cricketer's annual. Um, they have a brilliant uh, museum. Um, if you have a look. At it. It's called, if you just Google the Lily White Family Museum, um, it is full of cricket bats, gloves, equipment bags, all sorts of things that are signed. And there are old photographs that are signed. Um, some of my favourites are there's a picture here of old Lily White at Lord's, uh, there are a selection of cricket balls, there are match stumps, and down further down, there are a ton of old cricket bats that have been signed by various uh, people. Fred Titmuss, uh here, Middlesex and England. Uh, what have we got? Jack Robertson, Middlesex and England, uh, 1947 to 52. Um, a Lily White froud elephant, trademark presentation, cricket bat. I mean, just a whole load of things. And down here, we've got a pair of padded cricket leg guards by lily white as well we've got a registered scoring book we've got a cricket bag that is again signed um, and what have we got further down here we've got uh, have a look at this a cricket belt buckle from the 1870 England tour of Australia so it's huge about, amount of material culture huge amount of material culture and it's about and it's about collectability and memorabilia and you know we we talk about objects and memorialisation in our live show and we talk about you know Wellington's hair, you know, and people wanting to buy something that is connected to somebody who is famous, and so it's so it's the history of memorabilia, uh, and in particular, cricketing memorabilia. Um, and there is a there's a great um, website that I was looking at earlier on, which is called Cricketing Memorabilia, um, which is just an extraordinary the Cricket Memorabilia Society. This is a society that literally is there. Um, to help people um, find memorabilia. And its objectives are to provide a forum, including regular meetings for members to discuss and debate, collecting and identifying memorabilia, to attract former and County cricketers and others to our meetings, uh, to sign memorabilia, um, to produce a regular, informative and amusing quality illustrated magazine, to organise auctions of high-quality, excellent value items, to encourage, support deserving valid research, to produce ad hoc items et etc uh, to work towards maintaining fair and reliable
0: prices so i mean it's it's out there yeah and so i mean part of the point is that a his part of the history of cricket is to study it, the 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 growth of h- cricket collecting yes as much as it is going to cricket these places and, Rubia and yes. um looking at all the variety of stuff that's there that you can then you can pick apart and look at I mean, i'm looking at this now and there are some wonderful cartoons And the way that Englishness is being presented across the period. Yes. Uh, And the way that cricket is being manipulated and used as a tool for for cartoonists. Yeah. Yeah. I like that belt buckle. Lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Have a look at that other email I sent you. I did. I saw it. Same
1: thing. I saw it. This is cool. This is very cool. This is a belt buckle as well, isn't it? What's the
0: date of that? uh, We don't know, but we think about 1780.
1: 1780.
0: Yeah Uh, it's massively interesting this. It is. This is a belt buckle that was found in a gravel pit of the River Tweed which is a river that's positively awash with history. Anyway um, famous border river. Um, I went and mentioned I did a bit of filming up there. at Norham Castle one of those famous castles that um, is besieged. Lots and lots of different times. It's over 12 times, I think. It finally fell to James IV in 1513, just before Flodden. Mm. Um, and so much of that of the river, 18 miles of that river, is the border between England and Scotland. So someone, about 10 years ago, was given a metal detector and he just poodled about in the River Tweed. Everyone else is kind of fishing for salmon and stuff. and He finds this buckle, right? And it is... Can you describe what's going on here or shall I help you through it? Uh let me get it up.
1: So it is uh it looks like somebody who
0: from what I can see he's holding a cricket bat. He's holding a cricket bat. Look at the stumps behind him. What's happening The stumps
1: to have been knocked down. There's a ball smack in the middle of them, right, right so in middle stump. The key, bails key point, have been flying. He's
0: been bowled. Okay. Second key point, he is batting. Yes. Okay. Third key point is um he can you make out that he's got a collar around his neck?
1: Uh yeah.
0: He's got a slave collar around him. Oh
1: no, I couldn't. No,
0: okay, looks uh, like it's a necklace. The, it's very faded, but no, it's it's a it's actually a very distinctive um, naval slave collar. Ah, uh. right. Um, just above the cricket bat is a what? Um, Pointy house. Yeah, it looks like a windmill. There we go. It's a windmill, particular type of windmill, windmill used for crushing sugarcane. Ah, is this the West Indies? This is the West Indies. More ah. specifically than that, this is Barbados. Ah. So this is the earliest surviving evidence of someone playing cricket outside of England. It's the earliest surviving evidence of anyone playing any sport in the Americas. Um, it's of a slave playing cricket on Barbados, which was then... A British plantation. So it was found in the River Tweed, and just up from where it was found, just upriver from where it was found, was one of the houses of the Hotham family. Huge ancient English family, many of whom were in the Royal Navy, one of whom was governor of Barbados. Not only that, but they also were cricket mad. <laughs> Um, and so the governor of Barbados, it must have been his kind of great, 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 great grandson or something, went on to have a first class career cricket. He was an admiral in the Navy, but he was also a first class cricketer. And so the assumption is that this has somehow fallen off a member of the Hotham family, possibly even William Hotham, um, who was governor of Barbados in the 1780s during the American Revolution. He took part in the Battle of St Lucia. Nice. Anyway. What's super interesting about this, uh, not only is this about discovery and it's finding things in rivers, which I love. I think I'd, I'd like to do yep. I'd like to do a TV Swords series on finding in things Ooh. in rivers. Right, so when they started playing cricket in the West Indies, the plantation owners and the sons of the plantation owners and the white workers would bat. It's important having bats. if you've ever played with kids on the beach, you'll know that actually if you've got a good batsman, it's the worst possible thing to be the fielder because you just run around collecting playing. the ball. That's what happened. The slaves went around the boundary and picked up the ball that, it was, that was hit beyond the boundary and threw it back in so that the white people could carry on playing.
1: Right.
0: That's definitely how they got into it. But at the same time, the slaves were practicing cricket because they were enjoying the game they wanted yeah. to play. Um, so the depiction of a slave actually batting is deliberately subversive because they wouldn't have batted in any kind of match. Right. Um, but they were enjoying taking up the game themselves and giving it their own flavour mm, mm, and mm, flair. Mm, mm. So it's, a, it's an amazing buckle that's got all sorts of kind of complex stories that you can you can unpick. Which begs the question of who's making the buckle. Who's making the buckle, who's why and they're why wearing it. And, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: And it's also all to do with hurricanes, because if this is Barbados in the 17, just before 1780, probably seven, um, there was a massive hurricane that tore through the West Indies in the 1780s, and we know that it destroyed all of the windmills and basically most of the the tall palm trees at the right. There's an enormously tall palm tree, um, which makes us think that it's just before the hurricane that went through the Caribbean in the 1780s. Right. It's a smashing thing. Hmm, very good.
1: Okay, I want to talk very briefly about technology, and we're so used nowadays to the third umpire in technology um, yeah, and all sorts of... Um, you know, wizard camera tricks, so you know cameras in the stumps, so that you can actually see from a batsman's eye view the ball yep. coming in. But technology used to help um, make the game more enjoyable to to watch and also um, easier to umpire and and um, and kind of and judge. But what I'm interested in is some of the earlier technologies. Um, I remember the first time I I noticed my um, my games teacher um, when I was playing for the school, um, he would wear this sort of umpire's coat and in his pockets would have a series of stones, number of stones, six stones, and then would pass one across to the other and I thought what on earth is this about and then I realised that it's because there are six balls in every over simple counting he was literally he was literally literally counting but then this also got me to thinking about um, pockets listen to our thing on pockets that's a cracker about pockets but then also about hand signals and umpire's hand signals okay Um, so there's a whole there's a whole history of umpire's hand signals Um, what's this that's six that's a six okay what's this Bye. Oh, very good. What's this? One short. Uh, short run. Yeah. Uh,
0: what's this? I've no idea. New ball. Oh, you're a uh, new ball. Okay. What's Wait. this? Um, I Stop play. No ball. What's oh, this? I'm sorry, no ball. Okay. Uh, four. Four. <laughs> what's this? Uh, dead ball. Oh, very good. Oh, you've got it there in front of you. No, haven't I haven't. You? Okay. I'm doing, I'm what's actually... this? Uh, vampire corpse, dead vampire body. Vampire corpse, revoke last signal. Okay. What's this? Uh, one, out. Uh, oh, how's that? Out, out. Oh, out, out. sorry. Yes, no, out. sorry. We... Yeah, okay. Wide. Wide. And the last one is... Leg by. Leg by. It's a very interesting history oh, of... fascinating. And do you know why I'm interested in that? Um, because um, who's that eccentric racing commentator... Uh, John McCrure.
1: John McCrure, oh, who sadly passed away. He just this sadly week. passed
0: away. Yes. But he became famous for w- when he was talking about his, when he was doing the commentary about the horses that were coming on, he would do his hand signals as he was saying, mm. the, the, the odds are nine to four, mm. the odds are three mm. to two, whatever mm. it was. And those are called tic tac yes. hand signals. Yes. Um, and I, I just was, I look at it, they're amazing, they're so complicated. Um, <laughs> so you know, I think we, we should do something on hand signals. We should. Uh, I've got a manual of seamanship from mm. the uh, early 19th century behind you, and that's full of hand signals as well. Oh, we should also do gesture. Yeah, he's swearing at me now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James. <laughs> that's a great one. Brilliant. That's really, really, really inspired me. So we can say that the history of cricket is actually all about collecting. It's yes. about inequality. It's about perceptions of national history. It's about polar explorers. Slavery. Slavery, hand signals. It's about geekiness. It's about technology. Yeah, um, and uh, hurricane. Yep. And um, wis- wisdom. Wisdom and wis- wisdom. wisdom in wisdom. Yes.
1: Yeah, it and, is. and historical sources are everywhere. Mm. It's brilliant. Well, yeah,
0: well done. We photographs. Well, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Um, do please follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at UnexpectedPod. I'm um, at Dr Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And um, we are, James and I are trying to do something fairly significant here. We're trying to change the way that everyone thinks about the past by demonstrating that all of these strange things have histories, they all link together, and we really need your help for equipment, for the cost of editing to keep this podcast going. So please find us at patreon.com forward slash unexpected, or you can follow us on historiesoftheunexpected.com and find us on the support page. We'd really appreciate anything you can help us with. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed this. Bye. Bye.